You're listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews from experts around the world on the latest and most interesting trends and information on human rights and international humanitarian law. My name is Eve Rogers, and we're broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute in Lund, Sweden. Last year, I had the great pleasure of talking to Leilani Farha, Global Director of The Shift on the Human Right to Housing. I'm Leilani Farha, and I am the Global Director of The Shift. Uh, which is an international human rights organization focused on housing as it intersects with finance in particular, uh, looking at a whole range of issues uh, from forced evictions to homelessness to, of course, the financialization of housing and its impact on everyday people. Uh, Before becoming the global director of The Shift, I was the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing for six years between 2014 and 2020 um, was a huge global learning curve, an amazing experience um, that uh, convinced me that there is a global housing crisis that is nowhere near being solved and um, kind of forced me, all that I saw forced me to commit even further into the right to housing, the human right to housing, and using it as the framework necessary to solve the global housing crisis. A lot of people thought, well, after six years of rapporteurship, you might want to move away from the area because it's so intense. And I I had really the opposite experience. Mind you, I've always worked on the human right to housing. It's been my life's work. But it, it gave me that resolve because um, every corner of the world is experiencing a housing crisis and very few corners of the world are using a human rights framework, which I do believe could make a qualitative difference in people's lives. Can we start off by talking about this global crisis of housing? The importance of housing is recognised in the United Nations Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. But what are the main forces that are currently denying populations of that right? Well, certainly one of the big forces, I'm not going to say it's the only one, but one of the big forces is that housing and what they call real estate, uh, residential real estate, is housing is viewed and real estate is viewed, it's a commodity. And it's to understand financialization, that's the term I use for what's happened. All it means is where housing is used as a place to park, grow, leverage, and hide capital. Sometimes all of those things, sometimes just one of those things, um, but nevertheless, that's what the financialization of housing is, at least as I define it. And there is little doubt that when you treat housing as an asset, you don't treat it as a social good. This is a phenomenon that really has emerged since, ironically, the global financial crisis, which was really a housing crisis. It was all about mortgages and predatory lending, but in any event, they call it the global financial crisis. Um, So you had that happen and people who had invested in housing based on predatory loans that they were never going to be able to pay back over time because of hefty interest rates, for example, lost their homes. And in the losing of their homes and the complete collapse of the mortgage market, in swooped vulture funds who saw 
opportunity. And what they saw was they could buy, they weren't buying the homes, they were buying the debt and they were buying it cheap, 30 cents on the dollar, because they knew that all those people who had lost their homes still needed homes and they were going to have to rent somewhere. And so all those folks start looking for housing now owned by investors who start charging a premium for the housing. I mean, that happened in terms of single family homes, in particular in the United States. So, you know, just houses. But it also happened, for example, in Spain, social housing was bought by Blackstone, the largest private equity firm in the world. They, I believe, thought that they could sit on it for a few years and then turn it into market value housing rather than keeping it as social housing and think about the profits they would make then. Um, and then, then you have to think about who loses out. Well, the business model of these actors is to constantly increase rents because that the rents is how they secure the loans to buy those properties. And it's what they pay their investor clients. So they need a constant return on investment. And that means constantly increasing rents. And that drives people out of their homes. And that's presumably where the rights-based framework for housing comes in. Yes. Well, twofold. One, housing is just too expensive. And affordability is a cornerstone of the right to housing. So that's simple. I mean, driving people out of their homes by making them more expensive would be contrary to human rights principles, obviously. But also the insecurity caused by this phenomenon is also a violation of the right to housing because security of tenure is is a real foundation of the right to housing. And my predecessor, Raquel Rolnick, did a whole set of guidelines around what is secure tenure, very important aspect of the right to housing. And it's completely undermined by these actors. And so it's those two pressures on affordability and security of tenure that makes this area of financialization one of the key drivers of housing insecurity and homelessness. There are, of course, other, uh, oh, and I should say, excuse me, evictions. So legal evictions are actually not a violation of the right to housing. So you issue, you know, you, you go through all the legal procedures to evict someone. That is considered just a legal eviction. But where eviction ends in homelessness, that is a violation of the right to housing. Even if it was done legally through a tribunal or court or whatever, that becomes a violation of the right to housing. Where, where we can track that these evictions are disproportionately affecting a marginalized group that is protected by human rights, that too would be a violation. Um, and of course, we know that that's the case. If you, if you look at um, who is most affected by these policies, it's low-income people who would be protected by their social condition, we call it, or their socioeconomic status. It tends to be racialized groups, persons living with disabilities, single mothers, refugees and migrants. So all of those are protected groups. Um, and so obviously in that way, um, uh, financialization um, would, would be violative uh, of the right to housing. But as I said, there are other um, reasons that we have the housing crisis that we do. Um, if you take um, how homelessness is regarded around the world and people living in homelessness, they're mostly viewed at 
best as charity cases, people who should, you know, just get some charity, some handouts, but not as rights holders. And at worst, they're viewed as criminals. Often they are criminalized. If you take the United States, um, Canada, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, um, Africa, Asia, homeless people are often rounded up by police or interacted with um, by police and security forces and um, not viewed again, as I said, as rights holders. I mean, I like to do a swivel, you know, a shift <laughs> where we get people to start thinking differently. So when you see someone living under a bridge with a tent or living in a park in a tent or wherever uh, on public land somewhere, instead of looking at that person and thinking criminal or charity case, what we should be looking, looking at them as is not just rights holders, but rights claimants. When they pitch the tent, that's a rights claim. They're making their claim to the right to housing. They have nowhere to go. And so they're making their claim there on that public land. And that just changes the whole way we think about homelessness, doesn't it? I mean, it's, I love that because it, I can see when I talk about it that way, you know, big light bulbs go off for people like, oh, right. Yeah, I like that reframing a lot. I mean, it has me thinking about Budapest, where I used to live, because in Hungary, Viktor Orban's government made it illegal to sleep on the streets in 2018. So I guess it leaves me wondering where the framework to protect individuals from state-led policies like that is. I know. It is remarkable to me. I have to say that, given how absolutely fundamental it is. And I did track, <coughs> excuse me, Hungary, because that law came into um, effect when I was rapporteur and I did in fact write a communication that's just like a legal letter that it's one of the tools a rapporteur has and I did write a legal letter to um, the government of Hungary to, to say you know this is impossible um, and contrary to your hu international human rights obligations and of course they just defended um, defended their legislation so it's hugely problematic but you see I think if housing was understood by all states and acted on as a matter of human rights, Hungary wouldn't be able to get away with that. It's that all the other Western European states and some of the Eastern European states that are part of the EU don't believe and act on housing as a human right. I do think tides might be changing in, in, in that way. Um, I'm hopeful. I had a interesting conversation with Franz Timmermans, the executive vice president of the EU, um, recently on a podcast that I host, uh, co-host called Pushback Talks. And um, he said he felt the tide was turning in the EU, that it was, that the housing crisis was starting to be recognized as a crisis and not sustainable. So, but he said also, there's a lot of work to be done, <laughs> so. And I guess it does feel like a long road ahead with how intricately connected housing access and security is to other issues of social or racial marginalization in particular. Yes, I mean, I should have mentioned that as certainly one of the big problems. There's a lot of legislation out there that absolutely underscores and supports um, housing being used to divide people and to make some people winners and other people losers. We've seen it historically, and the, these are ongoing legacies. 
So for example, the ongoing legacy in South Africa of the Group Areas Act, which um, really forced Blacks to peripheral areas outside of city centre and allowed Whites to have prime land and real estate. Um, and that is an ongoing uh, issue, obviously, that, that has not been adequately addressed. In the United States, in the 60s and 50s, I guess, there was redlining um, preventing African-Americans from owning um, on certain streets and certain areas of cities, obviously an ongoing legacy where intergenerational wealth has not been able to occur as a result of redlining. Um, and right now, very topical, we have what's happening in Israel and Palestine with respect to um, their administrative laws and their absentee property laws doing exactly the same thing to Palestinians. So the, the, the weaponization of housing is really remarkable, done through what seems like you know, legal means, legislation, it seems all proper, um, and yet really used to divide and oppress. We've talked about these issues as an arena in which the state's a fundamental player. What about individuals and communities who are stateless? Or what about this right to housing combined with indigenous claims to land and access to resources, who can such communities then turn to? I mean, I think that communities are well placed to make their own claims, um, but indigenous communities have been doing that forever. I mean, they, they are very acutely aware of their lands and their um, attachment to those lands and their entitlement to, the, to their lands. And if we don't have states recognizing that, I don't, I mean, it's states that are contracting and allowing in the global actors who are going in to mine the land and um, disrupt indigenous lives. In many cases, indigenous peoples have their own governance and their own governments. And we have to give huge respect to those governance models and their governments that they've formed um, and recognize them as legitimate. And there are different human rights standards that apply to indigenous peoples. So, I mean, one of the obviously most fundamental right for indigenous peoples is the right to self-determination, which goes to the idea that um, indigenous peoples uh, can chart their own uh, course, uh, but also they have the right to free prior and informed consent before any interaction can happen around displacement or eviction from their homes or lands. And in most cases, you'll find where Indigenous peoples have been displaced, there has not been free prior or informed consent, and it certainly undermines their right to self-determination. So um, really important when dealing with Indigenous communities to understand the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Persons uh, or Peoples, excuse me, Peoples, um, to understand its interaction with the right to housing. And these are topics that you dealt with closely in your tenure as UN Special Rapporteur, which we haven't talked much about yet. Can you explain that role? Yeah, so the United Nations has um, a, a, one of its three pillars is human rights, and they appoint 
um, a whole bunch, I think it's somewhere around maybe 53 um, independent experts to act as global watchdogs on whatever their area is. So I was appointed as the rapporteur on the right to housing. So I was considered kind of like a global watchdog. So who was I watching? Um, I was responsible for watching states and making sure governments, making sure that they are meeting their international human rights obligations. But then I was also a watchdog on the ground. Are vulnerable populations, marginalized groups experiencing the right to housing? Are they enjoying the right to housing? Are they or are, is somehow housing further marginalizing them? So it was a sort of twofold, ridiculous scope, because of course I am but one person, although I had a mighty team, I must say. The tenure is six years generally, three plus three years, you have to be reappointed. Um, yeah, so I finished. It was an interesting time to complete the rapporteurship. April 2020 was my last month. Uh, as rapporteur. And of course, the pandemic had just been declared a pandemic. Uh, but I figured uh, as my, you know, as, on my way out of the rapporteurship, I should lay down some guidelines for governments on what they should be doing during the pandemic. So I wrote a series of guidance notes. That's how I spent my last month, I thought I would actually relax the last month and kind of do paperwork. Not so I ended up writing a series of guidelines on everything from forced evictions and evictions to homelessness to um, actually the, the business of housing and how it how I could foresee what was going to happen, which is happening now. Um, That's what I wanted to ask. How does it feel looking back on those insights and guidelines? How far were the recommendations committed to? Um, it's a mixed bag. I have to say, when I look back, I, and I, I've, I read them periodically now, I have to say, I really, well, it wasn't just me, me and my team, we definitely could see how this was going to play itself out, which is cool in that, like, none of us have been in a pandemic before. Um, but we could really see the implications for housing. So in that way, I'm pretty proud of those guidance notes, because um, they absolutely told governments what they needed to do. And governments didn't obviously follow every letter, as I said, a lot of governments did do, and I don't know if it's attributable to the guidance notes, but a lot of governments recognized right away that they had to deal with street homelessness uh, in a new way. Um, so there were, you know, a couple of moves. Some governments uh, did what we suggested, which was find hotel rooms and put people in hotel rooms, because of course no one was in hotel rooms. Um, and give people that safety, a secure room with their own bathroom um, where they might um, shelter against the, the pandemic. Um, the other interesting move by the Center for Disease Control in the United States, for example, and I really can't attribute this to our guidance notes, but I was super happy they did it. They said that people living in the equivalent of informal settlements in the United States, so street homeless in tents or tent encampments or encampments, uh, uh, should not be cleared. They should not be evicted or swept off the streets. There's a real policy throughout the United States, but particularly in California, to just sweep people and move them along. And the Center for Disease Control said, no, this should not be done during the pandemic. So that's that was super important to give people just that little bit of stability. And now we know, of course, living outside, in fact, may be the safest place much safer than a congregate setting like a shelter. Um, but some really bad things happened too. 
um, so quite contrary to the guidance notes, uh, curfews were put in place and homeless people were caught up in curfews and, and being ticketed. For example, that happened in France. It happened in Montreal. Um, shelters were downsizing. So emergency shelters were downsizing so that there wouldn't be overcrowding in the shelters, but without providing people with a place to live. And so creating more homelessness in some places. So it's been mixed. Um, I have been happy to see in Europe, for example, um, there were a lot of eviction moratoriums. That's super important. Um, in some countries, the eviction moratoriums were put in place and then lifted and then put back in place and lifted. So that ping pong approach, not so great. Um, um, and I've seen in informal settlements an improvement, for example, in Nigeria, um, the government did ensure access to food, water, and sanitation in ways that it hadn't before the pandemic. Um, but all of the violations that we're familiar with, with respect to the right to housing, have continued during the pandemic. So as I said, a mixed bag. Mm. A bit depressing to think about what could have been. It's, it is depressing, and it could have been a moment. I mean, governments are printing money. That's like a very zoomed out, you know, look at things. But Governments are printing money, and they're, but at the same time, what they're doing is they're making money cheap. For who? For the corporates and investors, at least in the housing area. I'm seeing that play out very clearly. So governments, well, and central banks, uh, set interest rates very low and engaged in what we call quantitative easing. And that's a complicated um, thing. Um, but basically, the result of quantitative easing is to have cash money flowing into an economy. And by doing that, they made things cheap for the corporates and corporates are using their, their access to credit and cheap money to now go on shopping sprees of apartment buildings, for example, in North America. And I mean, already the saturation from the corporates was was big. The, the big investors, private equity firms, pension funds, um, asset management firms, and that's only going to increase now. So how do we stop it? That's the question. We talked a lot in this interview about the role of state and governments, and I understand that a rights-based approach will tackle and charge the state as the entity responsible for upholding rights. But as far as I can see, what the shift is trying to do is also mobilise action from below, empowering communities and sparking awareness about corporate responsibility. As you move from your tenure as special rapporteur, are your perspectives on the role of governments and the state changing? Um, that's a great question, actually. I think I still see the state as ultimately responsible, but I also know that change always happens from the ground, right? We don't you don't change from a top, top, top to top approach, really. I think that can help, but definitely it has to come from the ground. And so part of what we want to do at the shift is enable conversations and support movements that are already existing. We're, we're only creating a movement of movements, really, um, is how I like to envision it. Uh, we're creating spaces for conversations, connecting movements, trying to expose that this is global, that there is a global desire to see housing treated as a human right and not as a commodity. And I've seen amazing shifts in that regard. I have to say, like, 
um, some of the movements that didn't use rights language are now using rights language. Like I think um, when I first started as UN rapporteur and um, I got to know a little bit about what was happening in Berlin, um, the very strong tenants movements there were not really using human rights language and now they most certainly are. Um, in Spain, the movements have always, they're very strong tenant movements there. There's PA, which is the um, organization that formed after the global financial crisis to deal with um, mortgage, uh, mortgage inequality um, and the right to housing. So they've always had the right to housing, the human right to housing at their center. Um, so I'm, I'm loving, you know, helping to create cross pollination um, folks in South Africa have always um, used since their constitution includes the right to housing, they're very rights oriented and using that framing. And in India, I've seen more movement now to use the right to housing in their framing, um, some really strong organizations there pushing it. So, so I believe that, that that's necessary, but what I'm hoping they will do in concert with the shift is hold governments accountable. And you see, even though, <clears throat> excuse me, we've talked about private actors in this podcast, um, it's up to states to make sure private actors are doing what states are responsible for under international human rights law. Because states have basically handed over the right to housing to private actors, which of course they can't do without continuing to monitor and ensure those private actors are accountable to the state and the state's obligations. So that's kind of how I see things. Um, I'm in the midst of drafting some human rights directives on um, the financialization of housing. And though the directives come up with recommendations for a variety of actors, it's really pointed at states and how can we get states to make sure pension funds, for example, don't invest in residential real estate in a way that is detrimental to the right to housing? And how do we get states to interact with um, private equity firms to ensure that private equity firms don't undermine the right to housing? How do we get them to interact with Airbnb to ensure Airbnb doesn't in, uh, affect the right to housing? So um, in that way, I still hold states primarily responsible. I think you articulate really well the nuanced interplay between community-led change and the role of the state. Well, it's, you know, it's one of the things that isn't talked about enough, Eve, is this idea of communities actually having the solutions themselves. I tell you, I have been amazed everywhere I go. I have been amazed at community oriented solutions where from from folks living in homeless encampments to folks living in informal settlements to tenants in Berlin, if we want to go back to that they have a sense of what their needs are. They are experts in their own lives. I know that sounds a little bit corny, but I think it's true. And, you know, with other po affluent populations, we don't question whether they are experts in their own lives. We don't question whether, um, you know, Bezos should buy a third apartment uh, in London or not, whether he has the capacity to make that decision. So why do we not think, but we don't, that these communities wouldn't have a solution to their, to their situation? It's amazing. And what also amazes me is the modesty. I have never heard a community solution that wasn't anything but reasonable, modest, not requiring a huge outlay of resources. I mean, really amazing and humble, you know, and everyone I've met, 
everyone I've met wants to pay for their housing. I've never met anyone who just wanted a free ride. What people want is to be able to pay within their means, within their household income. They know what their household in income is. They know what they can absorb, what they can't, what they can spend, what they can't. And so I think we need to trust in people more and we need to explore more what the right to participation means under international human rights law, because it is becoming almost a freestanding right itself. And it certainly plays an important role in the right to housing. That's fantastic. Unfortunately, it's all we have time for today. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. That was Leilani Farha on the human right to housing. This has been On Human Rights. For more information and the latest updates on the Raoul Wallenberg Institute's work, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you for listening.